quantum computing fundamentally is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalization of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realize the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer, join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast. Available today from wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Stephen Gray. Uh, he's the head of Spirit Plant Medicine, um, and he organizes the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. Uh, the website is spiritplantmedicine.com in Vancouver. So, Stephen, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Oh, very well, thanks. Well, good. Tell me, what's, what's the premise of the, uh, the conference and your whole effort? How did you uh, get into this realm? Uh, <clears throat> well, it depends on how far back you want to go. Uh, I'll confess my uh, my age right off the bat. I'm uh, just turned seventy, so I've been around since the uh, infamous uh, late sixties. Well, people say the sixties or late sixties, early seventies. Um, yeah. I was very interested in these two dovetailing streams uh, that were quite prominent, particularly in what was known as the counterculture at the time uh, of uh, an interest in spirituality and in psychedelics. There is no coincidence that the two of them were working alongside each other. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another over the next 30, 40 years. Uh, I worked with uh, a number of the psychedelic substances, uh, including cannabis. Uh, I'm the uh, editor and one of the contributor, one of eighteen contributors to a book called Cannabis and Spirituality. I've been organizing this conference in Vancouver for, uh, I think this is my ninth. This, well, the conference is in its ninth year, and I've been involved from the beginning. Um, yeah, so I've been involved with uh, work with psychedelics in a spiritual context uh, quite a lot over the course of my life. So I, I don't know. I'm sure most people are aware if they've used a psychedelic, but uh, 
why do you see the connection between uh, spirituality and psychedelics? What where does that connection come from, and what are your you know thoughts around it? Yeah, well, um, it comes from ancient history for starters. You know, there's evidence all over the world in you know archaeology and <clears throat> stuff like that that uh, you know showing the uh, the use of these kinds of substances in spiritual work and. You know, so one could go into that a little bit, but for the purposes of our conversation, I would just say um, one kind of layperson's way of describing these substances is as nonspecific or unspecific amplifiers. So basically, what they do is they open up channels, and really, you know, let's let's be blunt about it: they are reality medicines. They're not drugs in that sense. They're it's not about escapism. It's not about uh, avoiding reality or, you know, creating any kind of dependent condition or anything like that. These substances um, <clears throat> uh, are true. They're real if you use them properly. I mean, yes, they can be colorful and you know all that sort of thing, but uh, if you use them with the right knowledge, the right kind of context, container, etc. They have the potential to um, uh, dissolve the the boundaries of the known, you might say, and both function as truth serums to show us things about our lives and to open us up to a larger spiritual reality. The substances meaning what, like mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, ibogaine, things like that, or you know, what, mm-hmm. what's on that list for you that, uh, that tells <laughs> yeah. you that it's uh, well, the worst you know, ones you've seen that are effective. Yeah, yeah, there there are actually a lot of psychedelic plants on the planet. Um, but yes, you've just named the, the main ones. I've worked with peyote in the Native American church, uh, um, LSD or acid, uh, of course. Uh, um, iboga is the actual root, the plant itself, or the uh, psychoactive alkaloid ibogaine. Um, San Pedro is another one. It's very... I think San Pedro is going to be uh, much more prominent in the years to come. It's just getting started to be known outside of its traditional habitats in Peru and the surrounds down there. And uh, the cactus, right? The San Pedro cactus. The um, psychoactive alkaloid is the same one that's in peyote. Interestingly enough, even though their um, their natural habitats do not overlap at all, that's mescaline. Uh, So there's, um, yeah, the mushrooms, of course, ayahuasca. Um, you know, there's a few others here and there. Oh, some other ones that are developing uh, increasing interest are these short-acting ones like uh, DMT and uh, perhaps with even more promise, 5-MeO-DMT, which uh, I haven't really had much experience with, just a kind of a semi-dose one time with 5-MeO, but uh, there are a lot of people working with it up here in Vancouver, and what they're saying is that it tends to, uh, it doesn't have quite the bizarre uh, effects that uh, DMT often has, um, but it can, um, you know, enter one into what they call sometimes non-dual reality or awakening. Yeah. So, what what are the effects that you've um, experienced yourself, and what are the effects that you experienced maybe in uh, you know being with people that were using these substances? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when I was young, you know, when I was much much younger, I I did them in some sloppy ways, but uh, in the last twenty years or so, I've Generally, done these substances only in um, ritual contexts with uh, um, people who know what they're doing. Well, uh, you know, with the Native American Church, for example, um, it's, it's basically just you know I can elaborate a little on what I said about them being non-specific specific amplifiers. They they open up channels, you know, and 
So they open up uh, 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 insight, you know, into your own life and what you need to let go of to uh, wake up spiritually, as it were. Um, they actually potentially introduce you or invite you into a spiritual reality that's really unarguable, you know, when you experience it. Mm. Uh, people who haven't experienced it might question it, but if you've experienced it, you don't. Uh, um, in the Native American Church, I mean, there's so many different things that can happen. In the Native American Church, for example, those are prayer meetings. And so uh, people come in with an intention. Uh, there's a sponsor for the meeting generally. And that person has asked for help with something. It could be a very serious thing, an illness, a, an impending death, a recent death, or something lighter, like a birthday or an anniversary or a, like a gratitude meeting. But everybody in that teepee is praying for that person. And what the, the amplifying effect or the opening, deepening effect of the peyote is that uh, is that people are able, ideally, to put their minds completely on that prayer. And believe it or not, um, I've heard elders, I, I was around for about a dozen years before some of the people I worked with passed away and I kind of stopped going, but... Some of the elders that have been working with that medicine for 40 years or more were saying things like, when everyone can put their mind in the same place, when everyone can get out of their heads, get out of their selves, in a sense, and just empty into that prayer, that intention is really the word, you know, if you don't like the word prayer. Um, he said, uh, we have repeatedly seen what in conventional uh, society would be called miracles, like a person coming into the teepee, with a broken leg and walking out on two legs in the morning, you know that sort of thing can happen. Um, uh, yeah, they're just uh, they they open us up to what you might call an unconditional reality or truth. Uh, so that's immensely useful, as I understand it. I mean, they, when I say they do, they don't automatically do that. It depends on you and the situation that you're in. So, with the peyote ceremony. Um, how many people would be there, and would everyone take peyote, or just the person that you know, needed no, everybody. To help? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The very first time I went about 20 years ago, uh, um, you know, I was kind of nervous, and there were more native people than non-native, like myself, and uh, uh, and even among the non-native people, I felt like I was more of an outsider, like kind of a middle-class kid from Ontario that w never had a drug addiction. Whereas a lot of those people are are there, were there, and are there because of um, you know they've fallen off the rails, as it were, in one way or another. So I asked this one woman. I said, you know, as we were about to go into the teepee, I said, any uh, suggestions, you know, or advice, you know? She said, eat a lot of medicine. <laughs> So, uh, um, yeah, they all eat medicine. Yeah, they eat, they sing, and they pray. And how long would those sessions last? How long would the effects of peyote affect everyone? Um, well, they'll they'll have second, you know, they'll they'll pass it around a couple of times over the course of the night. Um, but the the meetings typically start around nine or ten at night and go till about the same time in the morning. It, it's it's hard work, you know. One of the elders uh, that ran a lot of those meetings, they call that person a roadman. Um, you know, he said one time to the group, he said, you know, relatives, you didn't come here to get comfortable. You came here to get strong. So, you know, and they come from a lineage of tough people. I don't know how much you know about the native people of uh, of America, but a lot of those people were really damn tough, you know. Um, and uh, so they that's kind of their conditioning almost, you know, in some respects. And so they... They expect people to sit upright all night, 
uh, not fidget a lot, not wander in and out of the teepee. Um, it's the energy that's created by people staying focused and staying as still as possible that actually generates that power. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, 30 to 40 about... There'll be 30 to... I, I didn't hear your last question. I'll just say um, there'll be 30, 40, 50 people in a teepee oftentimes. They're pretty big teepees. They have a fire in the middle, and that's a whole other thing in itself. They consider it sacred. They actually consider it a being, you know? Well, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of the typical... Uh... You know, American or Canadian person, you know, like I might help someone or help a neighbor, but, you know, uh, taking peyote and sitting there praying for, you know, having intention for 12 hours is a big ask. It's a lot of work. It, it is indeed, yes. Well, I can see for, you know, for very dire situations or, you know, family members and uh, super important prayers. Yeah. Yeah, doing it. But uh, Yeah, um, well, you know, uh, uh, peyote is legal for use uh, in this context, in the Native American church context. And this is granted by the United States Congress, uh, you know, the highest uh, legal in, uh, you know, pr approval available in the United States. And there's a reason for that. You know, I mean, this is a culture that's been afraid of psychedelics uh, in general, but uh, um, they uh, they approve that because it's been shown repeatedly that uh, it has uh, life-changing capabilities for a very large number of people. There are probably close to 400,000 members of the Native American church, primarily in the western half of the United States. And most of those people, as I say, have come in because um, their life had gone off the, off the rails, you know. And uh, they find uh, their life turns around when they, you know, like I say, these medicines show you the truth. They show you, you know, one of the things that'll show you if you come in when, you know, as a drug addict, you know, an alcoholic, whatever, um, they'll show you the choice between you know, a destructive path and a positive path, and then it's your choice. They don't do it for you, obviously. It just shows you the truth. They're they're like the perfect guru, you know. That's one of the reasons, actually, I got, I got involved. I used to be involved with Tibetan Buddhist practice uh, and study and teaching and so on for about 20 years, um, but I gravitated more toward working with these plants because they're like the guru that's incorruptible, you know, absolutely incorruptible, and you can never doubt what they're saying because they're they're just sort of clear mirrors in that sense. Well, have you seen people that go in skeptical and they're they're trying it just to disprove that it does anything? And uh -huh. Does that work, or is it uh, what happens to those kind of people? <laughs> well, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I have to talk to them, I guess, but uh, um, I would say. Uh, you know, if you're in the right conditions and you surrender to it, yeah, you're going to see some things that you did not know before. That's the whole idea, you know. Um, if you resist, if you physically resist, you're going to have a really hard time, you know, and you're going to go, oh, well, it's not for me, you know. Uh, it depends on how kind of encrusted, you might say, your ego is, right? If you're, if you're not willing, you know, this is what people say about all these substances, you know, you have to surrender, you have to let go, you have to get out of your head. Um, the, the, the bigger the dosage, the more powerful the substance, um, the less wiggle room you have, as it were, you know, if you, if you don't let go, you're going to have a really hard time. You know, you, you can't remain in the flatland during the time that you're in that state. So if, have you thought about ranking the different hallucinogens and, you know, if someone's going to first do an experience like this, what might be one that they would consider first and what are more for more advanced people that are used to, uh, you know, ego dissolution and the effects of these medicines? Hmm, yeah, that's a good question, Richard. Um, 
Hmm, I don't know. Um, hmm, let me think. Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> cannabis is one way in. You know, if you know people dismiss cannabis as a psychedelic or as a potentially powerful medicine, but if you do it uh, in the right circumstances with the right kind of medicine and do a fairly strong dose, cannabis has the, you know pretty much the same panoply of psychedelic potential effects as these other so-called major ones. But it also has this gentle potential as well. So you could, you know, come in slowly that way and make it a gateway drug, <laughs> as it were. Um, uh, then I don't know what else to say about these other ones. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms actually are pretty good ones to work with. Uh, again, because it's dose dependent, um, you can start with, you know, a microdose. You can do a half of dried gram, one dried gram. Uh, you know, once you get up to about two grams, you're talking about a, you know, most likely um, a pretty definite psychedelic effect. And uh, Terence McKenna used to prescribe five dried grams. He called it a heroic or committed dose, where you know there's no question that the ego is going to be flattened. There will be no flat land left to, um, you know, to uh, try to skirt around what's going on there. This dissolution effect of the of the uh, the boundaries of your previous um you know limits as it were um so psilocybin good one that way um i don't know i think you know most people could probably handle um ayahuasca in the right circumstances um lsd doesn't really have uh, uh there isn't really a ritual ceremonial environment going on for working with lsd but there are more and more psychedelic therapists, psychotherapists coming along that are working with all these substances. And, you know, if you, if you know enough about that person to trust them, then that, that's a pretty interesting way to enter into these kinds of situations. Well, how do you know? Let's say you want help. How do you know which one to try? Is it just, you know, by luck? Oh, I know someone that, uh, that can get peyote or versus ibogaine or you know, ayahuasca. And so that's what I'll do. How do people choose and end up with certain substances? That's a really important question, Richard, as far as I'm concerned, because there, you know, let's take ayahuasca, for example. There are, um, it, anyone can declare themselves a, it's called an ayahuascaro, or perhaps if you're a woman, you might call it an ayahuascara. But, um, you know, I think, you know, here's a kind of a typical scenario that might happen. Somebody from U.S. or Canada or somewhere goes down to Peru finds an encampment in the jungle somewhere with a, a, an ayahuascaro in charge of the place, stays for a couple of months, maybe does 10, 15 ayahuasca ceremonies, and goes, you know, I, I could come back to North America and, you know, I think I know something. You know, I could set myself up as an ayahuascaro. So I think there are a lot of people doing that around these days. And uh, um, I'm I'm pretty sure I think it's safe to say that not all of them well, first of all, the traditional training for ayahuasca arrows is rigorous and takes years. And there's a lot to learn. I won't take the time to go into how that happens, but I've read enough about it to know that it's a pretty long and rigorous process to do it right. You have to get to know the medicine. You have to get to know yourself. You have to get to know the spirit of the medicine and the songs that they say are actually downloaded. You don't make up these songs. They're healing songs that are taught to you by the spirits of the plants. You don't learn that in two or three months, you know. So that's the starting point, lack of training or poor training. Um, but then there are also these other potential issues of, um, you know, ethical behavior. Why? Are, what is your motivation? Are you in it for money? Are you in it for power? Are you uh, potentially a sexual predator? You know, there's, 
it's a it's a really important question, you know, and I, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is, except, um, you know, uh, finding out as much as you can about any particular person or scenario before you um, enter it, you know. Um, word of mouth, not just one maybe, but several, or people that you know, you know, let's say you know somebody really well and you really trust them and they've worked with this person for a while. That might be enough right there, you know. Um, but is there I, a you know, harm of, of, of effects? You know, if you uh, are dealing with depression, then this is better for you. Or if you're, uh, you know, addicted to drugs, this is better for you. Has anyone cataloged and found differences that, that, you know, one substance tends to work better for something else versus something? Well, that's also an interesting question. You know, it's a, it's a big question, really, because all of these substance have, substances have potential. You know, I think I mentioned earlier the truth serum uh, element of them. You know, they, they're they mirrors. And, uh, you know, you uh, like ayahuasca, for example, can uh, show people or take them back. Even sometimes they'll see it almost as if a movie reel has been pulled up in front of them that, uh, you know, a place where they were deeply wounded as a child, abandoned or whatever happened, you know. Um, so just seeing that stuff and coming to terms with it can be extremely helpful. Um, LSD uh, was legal until the late 1960s from its discovery in the early 1940s. Um, there's a famous, uh, at least in the worlds that I travel in, a famous um, uh, psychiatrist named Stanislav Grof, who um, uh, <clears throat> before he moved to the States, I think in the 60s, uh, um, uh, was the head of a psychiatric hospital in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and administered over 5,000 uh, therapeutic sessions or oversaw uh, working with LSD. And you know he's written a number of books and reports just unbelievable results working with psychiatric patients because what it tends to do is take you to the central most damaging or the trauma of your life, you know. Um, and so you live through it. You know, sometimes people even smell things, you know, um, like a guy will suddenly go, what's that smell? And, and he says, oh, it's baby poo. You know, he's been actually having a visceral relive of a traumatic time in his life, um, uh, you know, when he was a baby. Or as Stan Groff says, uh, uh, much of this damage actually happens in the womb. You know, and people are, I could go on about that, but I won't. Um, so basically these substances can uh, show you the places where you're blocked and so on. Um, mushrooms, for example, the psilocybin mushrooms, there's been a lot of wonderful, um, carefully controlled uh, research, uh, like clinical trials, I guess you could call them, or not even trials, they're not try, trying it out to, you know, uh, aiming toward legalization necessarily. They're, 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 I don't know what you call them, clinical studies where they bring in real people and do real-world um, uh, administration of psilocybin, such as at Johns Hopkins University. This is one that got uh, mainstream press back in the early 2000s where they took, I don't know how many, 75, or I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't know the number of people, but a sizable number of people that they were they wanted to work with people with a terminal uh, um, diagnosis, cancer in particular, and um, so they brought them in and they did a lot of careful preparation and they knew everything about their dosage and they told people what to do if they got scared while they were in the midst of it. Just let go, keep trusting and so on and so on. Just tried to do everything they could to make the people feel comfortable and safe. And uh, the reports that came out of this were just, 
you know, stunning, really. You know, uh, many people had what they called mystical experiences. And the ones who had the most mystical experiences were the ones who changed their attitude about their lives the most. They, like, I'm not worried about dying anymore, you know, because I saw the larger reality that we're all part of. We're not these individual, separated, uh, isolated, struggling egos. We are part of the eternal creation of life altogether. And and there's something completely reassuring about that, that you don't need to worry about that your body's going to die because it's going to happen to everybody, right? Now, this is just a couple yeah. of examples. Uh, Iboga, you obviously know the name, so you might know a little bit about it, Richard, but uh, um, it has this immense potential for working with addiction. Uh, Ibogaine in particular, the psychoactive, uh, isolated psychoactive alkaloid of the plant, has been used in uh, addiction treatment centers. And it has uh, some remarkable capabilities that are perhaps unique. Yes, I would say unique in the sense that uh, um, one thing that it does, not necessarily every single time, um, but it does do this often, is it somehow has a chemical or physiological effect that knocks out the craving for your drug. Um, And what that does, it's not permanent. It gives you a window of time, perhaps two, three, four weeks, to change your life after that. Um, and in one particular case, I just saw a movie recently called Dosed, which was a fascinating story of a woman who got out of uh, a 20-year cycle of drug addiction using uh, Iboga and Ibogaine. Um, and part of the reason she was stuck in it, she was a very intelligent, is a very intelligent woman, um, educated woman actually, just kind of fell in that direction. And uh, um, uh, part of the reason that she had such a difficult time was because she couldn't, I mean, g- getting out of that, that lifestyle was she, she couldn't go through the withdrawal symptoms. She'd give up after a while because it was so painful. And the aboga um, just knocked that right out. And she was able to um, have a few weeks uh, with no withdrawal uh, symptoms so that she could get clear of that. Um, at the same time, it also does, Iboga, Ibogaine also has this effect of showing you the truth or showing you the wounds of your childhood and all that kind of stuff. Uh, um, this particular woman uh, in the film, Adrienne, uh, spent like at one point, the Ibogaine can last for days and sometimes they'll repeat the process. So it can be a, like a week long journey, you know. <laughs> For a couple of days, she um, she reverted into an infantile state and relived a whole bunch of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, all those things, Richard. Uh, depression uh, is often uh, greatly aided by the uh, effective use of some of these substances. Even the, you know, there's a lot of it's not proved in the science yet, but uh, microdosing of uh, some of them, like LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, has been showing a lot of uh, anecdotal promise lately. Well, this could be a really bad idea. I don't know. But um, again, if one were to catalog the effects of these different substances, if you could even do such a thing, you know, yeah. has anyone tried using combinations of them? You know, let's say uh, X amount is a dose of of this substance, and Y is that. What if you did half of X and half of Y in a combination? Would that yeah, yeah. A well, effect I... or a synergistic effect? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's a, another interesting question, actually. I don't think a huge amount of it has been done, except cannabis can be quite supportive of a number of these things. Um, what cannabis does, if you take it after another substance, um, and it, uh, you know, this is we're not fooling around here, um, because what it can do is uh, it can potentiate the effects. It can actually make them much stronger. 
So you you know you want to be aware of that because we're already dealing with some pretty strong effects. Of course, it can also though smooth the effects out a little without actually mitigating them. Um, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, a lot of people use uh, in some of these ritual environments. Actual there's a religion called Santo Daime, which comes from Brazil and uses ayahuasca. Uh, as their central sacrament, and some uh, segments of that uh, religion or lineages or whatever you call it um, sometimes use cannabis, they call it Santa Maria, uh, at the end of the ceremony for the sharing sessions because it tends to uh, clarify at that point, you know, and it helps people articulate what actually happened. Um, uh, yeah, like mixing, say, ayahuasca and, and peyote, or I'm not seeing a lot of that going on uh, myself. There, there may be, there's, yeah, the, you know, they have, I don't know, it, personally, I would say, when you're working with these major uh, psychedelics, stick to one at a time um, for a number of reasons. There's, you know, there are ritual containers, there are people who are experienced with uh, helping you and working with them. Um, and and you know though you know the conventional society might laugh or roll their eyes, the native people, uh, indigenous people, and many of the people who are outside that world originally, but are now working with these substances, say there there are spirit energies that come in to work with you. You know, and uh, if you take ayahuasca and peyote in the same ceremony, then you know who knows what you're dealing with at that point, right? So I wouldn't mess with that kind of concept very easily, with one other exception. MDMA, which is not actually a psychedelic, it's known as an empathogen or an antactogen, um, uh, has this one this potential, again, you know, used carefully with intention, therapeutic guidance or whatever, has a potential to um, uh, open up the heart and bring insight and allow things to come up. It's used a lot for PTSD treatment and so on. Some people are combining that with uh, things like LSD and some of these other substances, and that can that can work. Uh, are there are there antidotes for all these substances? Meaning, um, you know, if you're having a uh, a bad trip, can you go to a hospital and get a drug that you know, they could administer intravenously that would bring you down or take you out of the experience? Yeah, they've got drugs for everything. <laughs> Yeah, I believe so. I don't. I'm not. That's. I'm not an expert on that. I don't know specifically what drugs would do that, but yes, I'm pretty sure. But you know, my guidance or my advice would be: don't go to the hospital. But for for starters, don't put yourself into a situation where you're going to need to go to the hospital. Like if you just take these substances on your own, um, you know, this ego dissolution capability uh, can put you into some pretty frightening places. And the 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 way that this work is beneficial is that you go through those having a bad time is not a bad sign you know it uh you know some of the people that work with ayahuasca say their most difficult and painful trips were the most beneficial to them because you know sometimes you just need to go through some stuff but then you have to stay with it this is you know at the Johns Hopkins thing this is what they tell everybody going into the psilocybin um sessions is if you get frightened, don't you know buy into any kind of a story. Don't don't resist. Like don't try to f- stop it. Just let go, surrender, trust, and then it'll change. And you'll go through it, and you'll come out the other side. And you'll you know uh, you just have to do that. So 
you know, I would just say don't don't ever take any of these substances in a situation where you're likely where you're just left to your own devices because they can show you the core realities of your life. They can show you stuff that's been buried your whole life. You know, um, they can show you that you don't exist as a separate ego. You know, this ego death. You know, people say, oh, I'm dying. Yeah, you are dying, but your body isn't dying. It's your mind, your concept of yourself that's dying. Right. But that's terrifying, and especially if nobody told you it would happen, right? So don't do it in those situations, folks. Please, you know, do it with somebody you trust. As, you know, your question earlier, Richard, you know, and it's not easy necessarily to find the right circumstance, but it's important, you know, and then go through it. And, um, I mean, have you talked to a lot of people that have gone through these, these experiences, or are you just oh, yeah. there supporting the community of people that, that want to do it? Yeah, I've been around and, you know, I'm quite involved in it, uh, you know, as the co-organizer of this conference, for example, we're bringing in people to talk about these substances in the ways that I'm talking about with you today, you know, how to use them safely, effectively, responsibly with some kind of reciprocal um, uh, responsibility toward the communities and the countries and cultures where some of the medicines come from, uh, how to move them forward, uh, you know, so that they get recognition, therapeutic environments, legal recognition, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I know a fair number of people involved with these substances. I know therapists that are working with them and, you know, different things like that and ceremonial leaders that they're working with them, etc. Any, uh, I mean, you've told me some already, I know, but any uh, anecdotes from people or from yourself that really, really, you know, you remember very strongly that stick out to you that you think are amazing or unusual? Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know. Um Okay, let me just tell you this one since it comes to mind intuitively, so to speak. Uh, this is a woman I know quite well. Um, she is an ayahuascara, or I don't know if they have a feminine term for it, but anyway, she leads ayahuasca ceremonies. Been doing that for seven or eight years. She is a person who has taken that training very seriously. She's done. They they would they they do this thing where they dye it with different plants, you know, so they get to know the spirit of the plant and can use it in their work. She's downloaded, excuse me, the songs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she's just a really tuned in, sensitive kind of person. And what she told me was that this is not one experience. You know, this is not a a specific anecdote. This is a general, um, her experience. She she said that the visual material that a lot of people experience on ayahuasca um, is uh, just the first layer. It's like ayahuasca 101. But when you penetrate beyond that, the, it's not so much about you know these kind of geometric and you know patterns and you know all that sort of thing. It's about actually connecting with uh, with spirit energies that can teach you things, that can show you things. Um, and uh, and she has done that. You know, uh, here's another. Uh, you can cut me off if we're running out of time. But here's this is my favorite no from, uh, situation or person these days uh, in terms of uh, spokesman for the central importance of these substances. And that's really what this is all about, by the way. Uh, and we could talk about that for 20 minutes, but I'll try to keep it under a minute here, is that uh, um, the reason uh, I'm so passionate about these psychedelics is because we absolutely need a major consciousness transformation on this planet if we're going to you know, survive in anything that doesn't look like a terribly dark dystopian future, you know? Um, and we don't know if that's gonna if we're gonna skirt that anyway. But we've got a better chance if if more of us wake up to who we really are and our connection to the planet. And 
you know, what's going on altogether in that regard, in, in the divine reality, if you will, you know. So there's a guy named Chris Bache. It's pronounced B-A-C, or spelled B-A-C-H-E. He has a book coming out this fall called um, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven. Um, and this is no sort of, um, you know, kind of new age, uh, you know, hippie-like guy or anything like that. He's a retired professor of religious uh, studies and philosophy from Youngstown, uh, Ohio, uh, University of Ohio. And uh, he used, the, I mentioned earlier, Stanislav Grof, and um, Chris used Stanislav Grof's um, protocol for uh, private individual work. And over a course of 20 years, he did 73 high-dose LSD sessions, five to 600 micrograms, with a guide, um, with a carefully curated playlist of music and with eye shades, and followed it up with meticulous um, journaling and note-taking the following day. And uh, I, you know, it would take me 10 minutes to really do him justice, but the, the long and the short of it is that um, after he said every session had. Uh, Two parts. The first was about two hours and was often very difficult, sometimes, in his words, even exquisitely painful, um, as he let go of this any kind of identity with you know uh, with himself, anything, any attachment to any aspect of himself, and saw his own faults and wounds and everything. Not something that most people would want to do, or could even stay present with, but he did for some reason. And in the, and after about two hours, he every single time broke out into. I'm using my language now, something that I would call the living intelligence of the universe altogether. And they kept teaching him, and they kept teaching him at deeper and deeper levels. And ultimately, in the later sessions, in the sort of around, I don't know, 15-year process of these 73 sessions, um, they started saying, your species is headed for a great awakening. But for that to happen, there has to be a great death. Because the trajectory that the planet, the, the, this, the, the kind of dominating mind state of the planet is not sustainable. It's an illusion. Uh, we, we, uh, we don't know who we are. We don't know what we're connected to. And we're disconnected. And so we're proceeding willy-nilly to destroy this planet right now. All that has to go. I mean, I don't know what has to go in the material realm exactly. But, but he's saying that there has to be an opening created for an awakening to happen. So um, it seems that we're going to go through, there are no timelines here, none of this 2012 stuff, you know. Um, uh, they didn't give them any timelines, but they, 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 they said that, you know, what's likely to happen on this planet is that, uh, the, you know, the, you've reached the end point of the karmic trajectory you're on. It's going to start breaking down increasingly. And as that happens, uh, of course, all kind of all hell can break out. But there's also some spaces that are going to open up there. You know, as uh, you know, the old ways fall apart, the old certainties, uh, you know, fall apart in some sense. There will be the possibility of a new vision that makes sense to people. You know, there's a. Uh, I think it was, I don't know what he was exactly, a philosopher named Victor Hugo, um, who once said uh, something to the effect of, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. You know, people are ready to hear. So, it, uh, and then Chris Beige talks about the birth of the new human, you know, that this is going to be almost another species that's going to come out of this that's that's not like, um, I don't know, just sort of a random selection of, you know, oh, this kind of human. It's the real human, you know, homo noeticus, uh, you know, awakened human, you know. 
So this, what the reason for the psychedelics is they open up those channels. They're the most direct source, the sort of uncorruptible guru, right? And that's what it's all about. Okay. So what's the best way for people to uh, to find out more about this this world? What do they read? Where do they go? What do they look at? What's, what's your recommendations? Yeah, good question. Um, well, you know, there's one source that I have not looked at, but a bunch of my friends uh, have. Um, it's a subscription to uh, Gaia uh, TV or Gaia.com. And um, uh, they have a lot of really interesting stuff, apparently. And one of them is they have a program. It's, it's already completed, but it's still there, I believe, called Psychedelia, I believe, Psychedelia. Um, there's all kinds of information online. You know, again, it's a caveat emptor, buyer beware. Decide for yourself. There's all kinds of discussion going on. Coming to conferences, uh, you know, quite frankly, you know, it's not a sales pitch, really, but our conference is an excellent uh, way to get reliable information and also meet a lot of other people. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I usually, I'm usually the MC of the conference, and one of the first things I say at the beginning is, hey, folks, doesn't matter how shy you are, the, apart from, you know, listening to these uh, presenters, the other thing that's going to make this, uh, you know, uh, useful weekend for you is to go and meet people. Like every time there's a break, walk up to somebody and introduce yourself, you know, and and then you find out what other people are doing. And, all, you know, this is this is an excellent way to find out where reliable um, guidance is for working with these substances is go to a conference like ours and read books, read books. Mm -hmm. There's some really good books. Read Chris Bass's book when it comes out uh, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. Uh, there's a lot of good literature out there on these things. Uh, Bill Richards from uh, um, uh, he was involved. He was one of the investigators that did the um, uh, Johns Hopkins stuff that I mentioned earlier. He's coming to speak at the conference this year, and he has a really interesting book, um, very very reliable information called Sacred Knowledge published in 2016 uh, from State University of New York Press. Um, yeah, and then, you know, when you find something that you feel, and you have to trust your intuition too, you know, this is like well, Ernest Hemingway's old thing, you know, make sure your bullshit detector is working, right? Um, because there are people, you know, who don't know what they're doing or are doing it for the wrong reasons and so on and so on. But once you find something that, you know, you can rely on, then go for it, you know? Um, there's much to be learned. There's much to be gained. There's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever about that. And this is not dogma. This is experience of so many people speaking. Well, very good. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming. It's been an interesting experience, and uh, I hope that people that are listening that are interested, uh, you know, find out what they want to find out and explore this realm. It's uh, it's very different and instructive. Right. Sure. Happy to discuss it any time. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, 
aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.